of David. Vindicate, oh, sorry, Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praises and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life along with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. great to be with you guys again uh, this morning, uh, bringing this psalm to you and explaining it together. Um, let me pray before we get into it. Dear Father, uh, thank you for your, the truth in your word and how you've given your spirit to us to continue to understand it and to grow in our knowledge of you and how we are to live this life for you. Uh, please be with us now and with me as I explain uh, these words to us all together. May we uh, be encouraged and uh, yeah, want to live a life uh, growing in sanctification and holiness uh, towards you until Christ returns. Amen. What does it mean to live a blameless life? David mentions it here. Is it even, in fact, possible to live a perfect and holy life? Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect life here on earth and a life that was sinless. But he was God. So how could we even replicate something like that? David is the author of the psalm. How can he say, honestly say, he leads a blameless life? Initially, it kind of sounds a bit proud, doesn't it? Surely he's just fooling himself as he prays this in front of the Lord. So what does it mean to live a blameless life? Can you and I live a life like this? Let's see what we can learn from David here as we go through this lamenting psalm together. In the first few verses, we see David seeking a life of holiness. He also asks the Lord to reveal all the sin in his life to him. Let's read that together, starting from verse 1. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. David was an upright man, and we're even told elsewhere that he was a man after God's own heart, which means he loved what God loves, 
but he also hated what God hated. It is evident from this psalm and other references that David's number one priority in life is to trust the Lord and live in obedience to him so that he can honour and glorify God. In David's honest reflection on his life, he can observe that his life aims to walk in one of integrity and without accusation. Notice that David does not say, for my life is blameless, but he says, for I've led a blameless life. That may sound very similar, but the nuance is in the word led. It suggests more of a direction rather than a position. If you're in another country and being led by a tour guide, you're following them because they know the place you're in. That doesn't mean you know everything about the country, but it does mean you're listening to the tour guide and lead, uh, following them as they are leading you where to go. David aims to live in a, a life led in the direction of one that is blameless. Again, the following statement, I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered, doesn't necessarily mean he's sinless. He's just stating that he's continued to trust in the Lord. So we know from this that David's attitude behind this is not one of pride in himself, but is actually a way of showing his humble faithfulness towards the Lord and his deep desire to live a life in obedience to him. In leading a blameless life, David is doing his best to live one without sin, but he also recognizes there's still sin in his life that he's unaware of. He realizes that he needs the Lord's help to be made aware of this, so he asks to be vindicated and tested. He asks God to examine both his heart and his mind, and so he is aware of all the evil which still lies within him. In trying to understand the word vindicate a bit more, I came across this commonly used tool by doctors to help diagnose patients. They use the word vindicate as a monomic to help remember the symptoms to look for. It turns out the process of using this tool is actually a good example of what it means to vindicate someone. We got this slide up there. Each letter of the word vindicate stands for something that you would check. So if you start with V, it stands for vasculator, meaning that the first thing you need to check on the patient is their vascular system. This is the system that vessels uh, carries around the blood, around the body. The second letter is I, which stands for inflammatory and infectious. So you then would have to check for all of those things. At the end, after going through all the letters, a list is then compiled together and everything is noted down. And this will help understand what the condition of the patient is or may be able to rule out others. And this is what it means to vindicate someone to clear someone of blame or suspicion. And that is what David is asking God to do, to vindicate him and clear his name of all wrongdoing. And in asking the Lord to do this, David seems to be, seeks to be more aware of his sin. And in knowing the sin that still remains, he can then deal with it and kill off those sins which continually entangle him. Notice as well at the end of verse 3 that it is not himself who he relies on, 
but instead God's unfailing love and faithfulness. It says, For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. He is only human and unable to fully deal with his sin by himself. But it's only God's ongoing love, care and guidance that he's made aware of his sin. David is pursuing a life of holiness, living a life that trusts and seeks to obey God, dealing with his sin that God reveals to him. That's David's life, but what about yours and mine? I wonder what your pursuit of holiness is like. I think the answer to this is probably influenced by our attitude towards sin, but also our view of God. What is your attitude towards sin? When you think of the sin in your life, or even the ways you've fallen short today, how do you feel about that? Think of one particular way that you disobey God recently. Now, as you think about it, what is your initial feeling and reaction to that? Do you think to yourself, oops, I shouldn't have done that, I'll do better next time. Maybe you know you're just going to do it again, so you're a bit apathetic about it and have given up trying to deal with the sin in your life. Perhaps you're actually in the habit of confessing your sins every single day, but you still don't quite have the same attitude that God does. What is God's attitude and view of sin? Well, it didn't take long after God created the world for humans to corrupt it with sin. And we find what God thinks of this in Genesis 6. Let me read a bit of that now. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. This then leads to God sending a global flood to restart the world. Notice that God is so troubled by sin that he wiped the face of the earth to deal with it. And this will be the same on the last day when God destroys sin once and for all. God's wrath and anger will be poured out on all those who haven't accepted forgiveness through Jesus. And God hates sin. He can't have anything to do with it. He is so pure, divine, holy, that it is repulsive to him. That's why when Moses asked to see the Lord's face, he could only see the back of God or else he would be killed. Again, those specific laws which were given to the Israelites were there to protect them and make sure they had no association with sin so they could draw close to God. Jesus has now come and made a way for us to be forgiven and able to approach him. But God's attitude today stays the same, however, between the two covenants. What is your attitude towards sin? And how does that compare up to God's attitude? Well, David continues uh, this idea of running away from sin. He doesn't want to associate with those who are evil, but instead he wants to proclaim the Lord to others. Let's continue following the next few verses from verse 4. 
I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with the hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands of innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling all of your wonderful deeds. David is still in this pursuit of holiness, being blameless in the sight of the Lord. But the way he goes about it is to have nothing to do with those who are pursuing evil. The deceitful, the hypocrites, the evildoers, and the wicked. All of them he wants to stay away completely so that he doesn't become like them. The book of Ephesians talks about this in a similar way. For the, of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater and has, doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now are a light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Now, this doesn't completely mean we should disassociate ourselves with everyone who sins. That would be impossible. Notice the choosing of the words here that describes sitting with and associating with. If you were to do these things, this means that you're spending a long period of time with those people. Everyone needs to hear the good news. So it would be wrong for us to discriminate against anyone who wanted to hear it. We do need to be careful, though, that how much time we are spending with the wrong crowds, because it might mean we actually become part of that crowd. You've probably heard that saying before. Maybe in school your parents told you, don't hang out with the wrong crowd. At school, there's always these different groups of people based on the friendships that we have. Typically, there's always the sporty group, the nerds, the popular crowd, the high achievers, the quiet ones, the gamers, and those who like to party. You're probably thinking about the one you are uh, part of at the moment. If you're interested, I was with all the nerds, um, but that's okay because we know nerds rule the, rule, rule the world, right? Anyway, it's true, isn't it? We become like our friends and those who we hang out with. Who are the people in your life at the moment whom you spend a lot of time with? What kind of people are they? How are they influencing and rubbing up on you, changing the way you think, or maybe even the way you think about God? Today, I think we can even extend this further than our friendship groups. Because of the digital age, um, yeah, we're we now have a new friend who probably influences us even more. The digital revolution has given us more ways to communicate than ever. Through phone calls, television, websites, movies, social media, we're able to communicate anything we want worldwide and instantly. Because of this happens so quickly, it provides more external influences to access different things in our lives. Do you want to put the next slide up? Did you know that the majority of Australians spend more than two hours on their phone each day? 55%. Do 
To put that into perspective, if you spend two hours a day on your phone, that's a total of 30 full days a year that you've spent on your phone. If you extend that to five hours a day, that's 76 days during the year you are on your phone. Two, two hours a day is also equivalent to 8% of your whole entire life. Five hours a day, you're extending that to 20%. That should be quite concerning. You may like to look at your phone later, as it can probably actually tell you the exact amount of time you spend on it recently. Now, initially, this actually might not be a problem, but it depends on how we're using our phones, whether it depends or determines whether it's a problematic addiction or not. My guess, generally, however, is that the apps we're using either involve uh, doom scrolling or sharing memes, watching videos, playing games. The content we receive through these types of apps usually is out of our control. From what our friends post, the people we follow, groups that we're a part of, or the, even the ads that we receive, much of it might not be glorifying to God. If you are spending much of your time doing these kinds of things, it probably is influencing the way that you think. And over time, it's going to slowly change and will change what you consider is good and evil. Now, I don't want you to go home today think that the main thing you need to do is to spend less time on your phone. Although that might be something you really need to deal with, and feel free to chat with me after the service and I can give you some good tips on how to go about that. But what we learn from this passage, however, is who or what is around us each day that is either helping or hindering our pursuit of holiness. How is what you're doing and the decisions you're making each day fulfilling your life goal to glorify God? Like David, we need to wash our hands of innocence, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And as we do that, we want to proclaim the Lord to all the people we meet, giving us opportunities to tell them of all the wonderful things he's done in our lives. How are you going at your pursuit of holiness and growing in sanctification? So to recap so far from what we've heard of this psalm, we should first lead a blameless life, asking God to reveal the sin in our lives that we're unaware of and relying on his faithfulness to help us in that. Second thing, we need to stand innocence from the wicked, being aware of all the different influences in our life and instead proclaiming Christ to anyone we meet. Now the last part of this psalm, as David continues to pray about his desire to draw near to God. Let's read the Last bit of it together from verse 8. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with the sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes. 
whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. <laughs> In the flow of this psalm, this section actually is quite a contrast to the previous one. Verses 4 to 7 is phrased in a bit of a negative tone, showing what David doesn't want to do, whereas 8 onwards is phrased in a positive way, describing of what he does want to do. Instead of saying, I do not sit with the deceitful, he now says, Lord, I love the house where you live. I don't want to be with the wicked, but I instead I long to be with the Lord my God. David sees as being with God the most important thing he can do in his life. He loves him so much that he wants to be in the place where God's glory dwells. I've kind of seen this connection um, with many of my friends as they've got into relationships. When you love someone, you want to spend a lot of time with them. In fact, you're so dedicated to the relationship that you're willing to reorientate your whole entire life to spend time with them. It's quite funny, actually, uh, before they start dating, how busy they mention themselves to be. You'd nearly think it's impossible for them to, in our busy culture, that they could even find the time to meet regularly. But surprisingly, not. They are very happy to make that a priority. They think it's important because lots of the time, lots of time is required to grow a relationship. And it is also evident when you love someone, you want to spend so much time with them. I wonder what our romantic relationships say about our heavenly one should be like. David loves God so much that he wants to be with God as much as he can, the place where God's glory dwells. It is because of that he knows God will deliver him and have mercy on him. And this is why he seeks to live a blameless life. In David's desire to live this way, he sees the direction he is heading, but he also knows the destination. The destination is the most blameless place, the holiest place, God's house where his glory dwells. But this 9 and 10 indicates he is actually looking further beyond just the temple as he seeks mercy from the Lord in relation to his eternal destination. Do not take away my soul along with the sinners of my life, with, whose, with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. He knows that everyone will be judged on the last day and there is a consequence depending on which side he lands on. If he was among the wicked, rejecting God, then his soul would be taken away from him. However, his life of innocence actually demonstrates his salvation. David looks at his hearts as he seeks God, and through this lamenting psalm, he concludes with assurance. In verse 11, he says, I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground in the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. At the start, David was looking back on his life, but now he knows where he stands and looks forward to where he is going. He looks 
back and observe his life of integrity, now stands in God's house with his people and looks forward to continuing to live a blameless life. So how can we lead a blameless life? How can we stand assured in God's presence? It's by drawing near to God and loving the place where his glory dwells. For David in his time, that was the temple. But even then, because he was not a priest, he was unable to enter the temple itself and only the outer court. For us in our time, God no longer dwells in the temple. So there's no point for all of us packing our bags and heading off to Jerusalem. God now dwells with his people through his spirit, which he has now given freely to all those who profess to know and love him. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has provided a way for us to draw near to God. As the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is a great privilege for us, to be able to draw near to God in this way. That means we can talk to him anywhere, at any time, in any situation, and we can know that he will hear us. How do you draw near to God? How does your life demonstrate your love for him? Maybe you know you want and love God, but actually struggle because your life is so filled with so many other things, being too busy for him. If that's so, make time and put God first, and then everything else will work itself out. Maybe you have reorientated your life to make God a priority, but you feel as though when you meet with his people and you read with his word, uh, you feel distant from him. If so, I encourage you to persevere. If you draw near to God, you can know he will draw near to you. Perhaps you don't really even love God and your life actually shows and demonstrates that. You come to church because you think it's a good thing to do, but really it has no effect in your life. If so, repent. Jesus offers a whole new life, one with eternal hope and a greater purpose. Maybe at the moment your relationship with God is actually going really well. And you can honestly say, like David, you have led a blameless life. If so, be aware that it doesn't turn into pride instead. Wherever you are at, the general application is the same. Continue to draw near to God and seek to live a blameless life. Because he deserves the glory and he longs for his people to love him back. Now there is one last thing we should note and not forget. As awesome as it is for Jesus to be our great high priest, giving us access to the Father, 
it's actually not God's final plan in wanting to dwell with his people. Because Satan is still in the picture at the moment, disrupting that relationship. Just like David was looking forward to his eternal destination, this is where we should be looking towards as well. When Christ returns again to judge the living and the dead, he's going to destroy sin once and for all. Once sin is dealt with, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And this is how God will ultimately dwell with his people. As we read in the last few chapters of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now that will be a a glorious day when we can see and experience God in his fullness. May we live a life that is led in the blameless life, standing on level ground in the great congregation, praising the Lord, looking forward to that final day when God will dwell with his people perfectly. Let me pray. Dear Father, you give us a great picture of what it's like to dwell with you completely to look to that final day where we'll be able to experience your fullness where our relationship with you with you will be perfect Um, but we're in this life at the moment uh, where it's not like that you've given your spirits and we can draw near to you, you through that being with your people through prayer and reading of your word help us to value that help us to make you our number one priority in life that that would be you would be the one that we live for as we long for that final day as we live life uh, surrounded by sin help us to think about the influences and the way that we are growing in holiness help us to say that we can lead a blameless life as david has demonstrated here help us to think about these things as we talk about these things after the service too. May we be encouraged to grow together as your church in holiness and sanctification.